0: Hello and welcome to another conversation in Anthropology at Deakin, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. I'm David Border Giles, a lecturer in anthropology at Deakin University. And I'm joined, as ever, by my trusty co-host, Timothy Neal, a Senior Research Fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation. We come to you with support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University and in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This episode, we are on the road again, uh, this time with Tim travelling to the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association 2019 annual meeting, hosted at the University of Waikato in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, where he sat down with several folks to discuss their work and what anthropology or in some cases ethnography has to tell us in the 21st century.
1: Yes, I was very happy to find myself uh, in the Waikato region on the lands of Tainui peoples mixing and mingling with colleagues in Indigenous Studies. It was the largest ever conference held by the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association or NASA, with over 1,700 delegates from all over the globe. Daily we were blessed with great kōrero, talks, waiata, karakia, kapahaka performances. It was awesome. That said, this NASA meeting, like others I've attended before it, was not exactly teeming with self-identified anthropologists, but there were quite a number of scholars who use ethnographic methods, write about anthropology, and draw upon and critique anthropology. So today's episode features two conversations, the first with geographer Heather Dorries and sociologist Robert Henry, and the second with anthropologist Willie
0: Lempert. So Heather is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, where she's appointed to the Department of Geography and Planning and to the Centre for Indigenous Studies. Uh, She trained and worked as an urban planner before beginning her academic career. And as you'll hear in the episode, her research examines the relationship between settler colonialism and urban planning. Uh, She's a co-editor of the forthcoming volume, Settler City Limits, Indigenous Resurgence and Colonial Violence in the Urban Prairie West, and is currently working on a book manuscript titled uh, Planning at the End of the World, Indigenous planning theory and the art of a refusal, which considers how Indigenous intellectual traditions can provide a normative basis from which to reimagine planning in ways that support the flourishing of Indigenous urban life. Uh, Heather is of Anishinaabe descent and is originally from Winnipeg, Manitoba.
1: And Robert Henry is Métis from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and holds the position of assistant professor in sociology at the University of Calgary. Robert's research areas include indigenous street gangs and gang theories, indigenous masculinities, indigenous and critical research methodologies, youth mental health, and visual research methods, as you'll hear. Working closely with community partners, Robert works to create knowledge mobilization outcomes that reflect community needs and wants, and he's published... A photo voice narrative collection with indigenous male gang members called Brighter Days Ahead. And he's recently submitted another collection with indigenous females about their involvement in street gangs titled Through the Looking Glass. Robert was the lead editor of the 2018 book Global Indigenous Health and is a co editor of three other collections Settler City Limits, The Arts of Indigenous Health, and Indigenous Sociology and Life World. His current research focuses on the concept of survivance and its applicability within Indigenous research more broadly. So let's go to that conversation. <laughs> So uh, a way we like to get started on this podcast is just to give an idea of how people came to use ethnography, whether that's interviews or participant observation, as something to come to understand about the world. So uh, Heather, how, how did you come to this as a, as a way, as a research method or, or whatever it might be to you?
2: So as someone uh, working largely in the field of urban planning or sitting between urban planning and indigenous studies. uh, I'm really interested in the ways that urban planners are rationalizing their decision making and how they're taking indigenous perspectives into account or not, for example. So uh, interviews with planners, uh, participating in, in planning meetings as well is something that's really important for understanding how planners are thinking about the work that they do and how they rationalize their decisions and the kind of knowledge that they take into account when they're when they're making decisions
1: so did you find them easy people to approach
2: it really depended it i find it really depends on how i Pitch the research and frame the questions that I'm asking. Like if I say if I if I describe my project in a way that sounds really political, and it's really obvious that I'm going to be wading into um, contra- what they might think of as controversial issues, um, things that there might they might be uncomfortable talking about, then they're quite cagey or people won't want to talk to me. But if I say, you know, I'm just interested in this particular development process and can you tell me about your work on this project, then that's an entirely different response, I find.
1: And uh, Robert, uh, can you tell me a little bit about your journey into ethnographic methods?
3: Uh, Sure. I do research with individuals engaged in street lifestyles, primarily Indigenous gang members. And I got into it for the simple fact that there isn't a lot done on it from their perspectives. A lot of it's from police officers or secondhand reports or quantitative information. So my research was focusing on how do we actually begin to understand the experiences and the life histories of individuals. So I work with community partners, community engaged um, research uh, methods and methodologies and What I found is that rather than just doing interviews and that is to use photo voice and modify photo voices in a particular way for individuals to show what the life is like so that we um, rather than following or watching individuals as they're going through their life in every part, they actually take the photographs of what the life means to them and brings it back into the room, which um, allows for... Kind of different discussions to happen, um, and it also takes the gaze away from myself and allows the uh, participants to say, "This is the gaze we would like you to actually see from." Mm-hmm. So it actually reframes that sort of space. How did you come to photo voice as a as a tool? With photo voice, it was actually it was a. I saw a book in the bottom of a law library when I was doing my masters, and I saw it was called Boogie, um, and it's was it's called All Good. It's All Good, and it was about uh, Boogie, was a, f- a photographer who went into uh, Brooklyn and started taking photographs of the individuals there and began to take their narratives and creating stories through their narratives and utilizing that. And I thought this would be a really interesting way to understand what does it mean to be uh, an Indigenous gang member in the Prairie Provinces. And so I took this book and with a community partner that I was working with for about four years before I started to do any research, I said, this is what I'd like to do. Is this something that you think the individuals would be a part of? And they'd like to do it. And they saw the book and they said, yes, we want to do that. So the whole project actually became about trying to understand what is, how does masculinity transform uh, or is perpetuated within these urban spaces, and then creating a knowledge piece that they could give back to the community, which became the uh, book called "Brighter Days Ahead."
1: So, did you come to the project through uh, advocacy or activism? Like, what was the backstory there?
3: The whole backstory was so from where I'm from on the prairies, uh, it, Prince Albert, the term "gang" um, and in Saskatchewan in the late 1990s began to take uh more hold in the media and people began to get afraid and i was uh working in the public school division at the time as an educational assistant um and what happened was they brought the police in and the police were saying what's well, these backwards kids wearing backwards new york yankees hats and this was the time when the new york yankees were rebranding themselves so it wasn't the black hats anymore it was all the multicolor hats and everything else And Prince Albert's a very divided city there. It's divided by uh, a road that runs north and south and across the river, but it's also divided by a hill. So you have the north on the flats and you have the hill and you also have east side and west side. And so my family, since we're Métis uh, in the community, mostly we lived on the west flat. So poor high aboriginal uh, space. And I asked the police officers, I said, well, what about the kids on the east hill? And they said, no, not those kids. What about the kids on the west hill? Not those kids. What about the kids on the east flat? Not those kids. So basically, it's these kids wearing backwards New York Yankees hats on the West Flat. And I said, yes, because they're the ones that commit crime. And so that's how I got into this, was trying to ask that question. How do uh, police officers begin to racialize uh, Indigenous bodies? How does the gang become this sort of space? And so from that point on, a lot of my work within education. Uh, and advocacy, I guess if you want to say that, has just been working to try and understand what are the lived experiences of the individuals who actually are labeled as gang members and what are they actually trying to do. And Heather, what was your route into planning offices? Like, how
1: did you you end up there?
2: One of the things that really stood out to me as an Indigenous student in an urban planning program is the fact that Indigenous histories um, were virtually erased from the planning education I received. So there was this uh, repetition of uh, understanding of land as terra nullius, right? It's there and open for development. Planners just need to decide what needs to be done with it. And at the same time, there was a lot of conflict um, happening in the place where I was studying around development in land claimed by indigenous peoples. So this, this drew me to the, the, this question of how uh, urban planning impacts Aboriginal rights and uh, and communities.
1: This kind of brings me to a question I have about indigeneity, spatiality, because for a long time, I mean this is true in Australia especially, uh, but I know from elsewhere, indigeneity is a kind of popular concept. It's really associated with remoteness, being remote from the, the metropole, uh, remote from the state, is and this seems consistent uh, with the kinds of contexts that you're writing about. So I was wondering for people who are kind of less familiar with this topic, where has that association, I guess negative association between indigeneity and urban spaces, the kind that you work and come from, in your view, and what are some of the kind of consequences of?
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly it's a, it's a really prevalent assumption that cities are not indigenous spaces. And I think this is part of the strategy of colonialism, right? To get us to think of different types of space as not being indigenous. To think of all space as not being rightfully indigenous space. Um, In the Canadian context, if we look at, you know, virtually every city in Canada is built on the traditional territories of indigenous people and in places that were of economic or continue to be of economic and cultural importance to indigenous communities, uh, colonialism has created ways to keep indigenous peoples out of those territories, whether it's through the reserve system, which often created reserves in areas that were purposefully located away from cities or through the past system, which restricted the movement of indigenous peoples keeping them out of cities purposefully in order to maintain this idea of cities as a place of modernity, a place of progress, and um, not a a space, uh, not a place for indigenous peoples.
3: But we've never really been out of the city that's the other part too like when we look on the prairies when we look at the metis like road allowance people we were uh, like my family history is about living just on the outskirts of the city building the city and making sure that it was the progression was happening but never being included as part of that and those histories and being removed and when indigenous people's bodies move into the cities we see this actually happening in canada when we look at uh, statistics of crime rates we see that the more as indigenous peoples have moved into urban spaces we see an increase in crime rates going across uh, the spaces and this can be in a way is associated to the ways in which indigenous peoples are becoming too close and we need to remove them again and we need to show the violence that they are uh, these violent spaces um, and so with the work that I do as well uh, one of the things is looking at the street gang Yes, the violence that happens within street gangs and all that, and we'll look at that, but also the ways in which street gangs, Indigenous street gangs, are actually reclaiming urban space through tagging, through uh, their presence, mere presence of just walking up and down the streets. Um, Even though sometimes it's a negative space, they're also reclaiming it and saying this is our space and we are here um, moving forward. When we look at the idea of indigeneity as well, I think it's really complex, even from indigenous perspectives. When we look at cultural um, understandings and land-based education, and how we continue to say, "Well, if we want to learn to be indigenous, we have to be outside the city and go out there." And I think that's a misconception when we look at land-based education. Um, But at the same time, we haven't really critiqued it from an indigenous perspective as well. The the cost of going out back onto land for on urban spaces, and even though that the majority of indigenous peoples live in um, in urban spaces now, over 60%, I believe it is, in Canada. What is that cost of, we're telling individuals that you have to go back to the land in order to be Indigenous, but yet mm. you've been living for three generations in the city itself, and if you're not quite... So we're creating these uh, complexities of Indigeneity as well within this, within our own discussions, I believe. Are there ways in which
1: is or Indigenous peoples, I should say, are beginning to be recognised in urban spaces in Places like Australia, we're starting to see more of this kind of official recognition, which comes with its own um, kind of uh, delimitations of who gets recognized and who doesn't. Are you starting to see that in, in, in anything in terms of architecture or official recognition?
2: I think it's important to remember that, yeah, Indigenous peoples have always been in these areas, have always been in cities, have always... Um, made Indigenous space in cities in different ways, whether it's through community organizing and social organizations, whether it's through uh, different kinds of cultural or artistic practices. This has always been happening. Uh, I think you can probably see in a lot of cities, in, at least in the Canadian context that I'm familiar with, uh, uh, a growth, a resurgence of this type of these types of practices. So um, Indigenous placemaking through arts practices, I think, is becoming more and more visible. I think Indigenous people are, through some of these practices, becoming more visible. I don't think this has necessarily been met through, by official forms of recognition uh, or, you know, participation in or being welcomed into decision-making processes in the city.
3: Like, I agree with what Heather's saying there. Um, And within Canada, what we continuously is this idea of reconciliation or talking or claiming and, and um, so before events at universities now which are in urban spaces is there's always a land recognition and, and, and doing that. But what's happened is that the idea of land recognition through the TRC has become almost a checkbox that universities have to do this, mm. but they're missing the intent and what this what it means to actually recognize the land that you're supposed to be in good partnership. You're supposed to be building relationships. But what universities are doing is they're just saying we could, we're doing the land recognition. We're on uh, Treaty 6 territory, homeland of the Métis. Thank you. Now let's get going and have no Indigenous voices or in those spaces and make the decisions for Indigenous peoples in those territories at the same time. So it's almost this weird way of uh, recognizing Indigeneity, but not allowing Indigenous thought to be in the same space. So we will recognize that and we'll absolve our guilt about pushing you out and doing all of that. But we're not actually going to allow to, you to be partnership because you're still not welcome to be in these spaces that we're trying to reclaim as our own. I kind of want to ask you, therefore, Bobby, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I've got lots of names.
1: I, I kind of want to follow up by asking, therefore, about the cunning of recognition and and uh, this idea that certain kinds of indigenous peoples get recognized in those processes and those who might be pathologized or seen as uh, not you know not the kind that we want to be uh, uh, that, that fit easily within those kinds of bounds like people who are walking up and down the street making
3: their indigenous you know their indigenous presence so and I want to no. be careful here because this is going to get me might get me into some trouble. I find that in urban spaces, the Indigenous peoples who can reclaim to this traditional idea of culture and reclamation of it through the embodiment as they're moving forward, so through cultural artifacts or wearing specific things or, or partaking in certain I- ways, this culturalization of indigeneity is very popular and it, it allows for individuals to say this is, a, this is what a good Indian looks like. But individuals who don't follow that or Indigenous people who don't follow those traditional sort of spaces and are more... Um, Follow a different sort of space. So if they're Christians, they don't are they aren't seen in the same space, and they're moved away from it. Or we're missing the point that it's more than culture. That when we're looking at urban spaces and we're looking at police and and issues within uh, justice issues and health issues, race becomes racism becomes the number one factor that we're seeing in here. So even though, uh, like myself being a white skinned indigenous person, I know that being in the city means something totally different. That I'm treated differently. Um, And I see this, we can kind of start seeing this happen where if you're not acting in the way that the settler gaze continues to say that this is what indigenous looks like or is trying to be, then you're removed or you're not good enough and we need to go back and reculturalize this. But within urban planning, we see buildings and and, uh, different ways in which space is being reclaimed and renamed and all of this. And I think Heather can talk about this far greater than I can. But it comes to being a ceremonial piece and then we totally forget about the importance of what that piece was trying to do and how it was trying to build relationships. And then we see a, a building go up and then a name go to the building and it's a, everybody comes together and then in six months... We're not seeing any change in the relationship that's happening between Indigenous peoples and the settlers that are in those spaces.
2: Yeah, I guess just to expand on on what I said before, I think you could find many examples where cities are increasingly interested in having some aspect of Indigenous art integrated into development or be part of the um, streetscape. But this is often more of a form of uh, window dressing. It's not, uh, I think it's, too often not then leading to um, the recognition or um, integration of indigenous political authority, for example, into decision-making processes concerning urban development.
1: Yeah, well, I guess urban planning is a boring for some uh, field, but uh, work like yours shows how it is a crucial political technique of settler governance and racialized governance. But for those who are kind of unfamiliar with this way of seeing, can you give people some some idea of how urban planning uh, is a form of racialized governance for indigenous peoples in, in, your, in the context in which you work?
2: Yeah, it's interesting that you say that urban planning is boring.
1: <laughs> I, I say that just from teach trying to teach people about planning.
2: A lot well, I think there is this perception, and including amongst planners, that it's not a political practice that making decisions about how development should take place is really a, a technical question, right? You need to f- figure out what, what the environment can bear, how, how much parking space to account for, etc. Like it's seen as merely a technical practice when in fact it can have huge impacts on indigenous communities and aboriginal rights in the Canadian context. So, if we look at major flashpoints in the history of Indigenous Canada relations, we can see they've often been precipitated by municipal planning decisions. Um, The Oka crisis, uh, which involved the largest uh, deployment of the Canadian military at the time since the uh, Korean War, was precipitated by a decision to Um, build a golf course on land that was sacred to the Mohawk community there. And they staged a land reclamation and Canada responded by sending in in the army. And there are other examples where, again, it's a a minor, boring municipal planning decision precipitating major conflict over land and development. And I think it's because people think of it as a, a boring or political or technical practice that it allows it to operate in this in these insidious ways, determining what's going to happen on indigenous lands. Um, and because we associate, I think, or cities are often associated with modernity, with progress, uh, once the city is there, you know, once the city has expanded, once the city has um, consumed those indigenous territories, I think it becomes even harder than it might already be for anyone to imagine those territories as rightfully indigenous. So that makes planning really interesting to me.
3: So my background isn't even in this but what it is is focusing on the experiences of individuals who are who are impacted by city planners and what we're seeing in a lot of communities that are seen as gang infested or uh, poverty and violence is a gentrification in order to make the space beautiful for people, the good people to move into it, and it's moving and displacing families around or the deserts uh, with the grocery stores and, and that. Where we look in, in impoverished neighborhoods, it's really hard to find healthy foods and grocery stores, or even development in in ways that can support individuals, or even transit that's happening uh, doesn't go through specific neighborhoods, um, which then impacts whole lifestyles of individuals and moving through, and so. It's really interesting when uh, working with individuals who are involved in the street lifestyles, they're extremely aware of what's happening. And they even talk about gentrification and and what's happening and how people are getting shifted and moved when a building gets closed down, the ways in which they have to renegotiate their own survivability within the urban space because that building was more than just... a like, place that needed to get torn down. It was a place, it was a meeting place, it was a place that people could go to go and sleep if they needed to. Um, so, by doing that, you're reshaping and reshifting the ways in which people are moving in and about their own communities.
1: And so, further to that, do you have any kind of stories or, 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 or hints about how to teach people to see urban space
3: in these politicized forms? So, Well, Heather's thinking here because she's going really deep in her mind right now. Um, I think one way that urban planners and students and, and others can actually start doing this is working with communities and community partners, but using photo voice as a way for them to come back and saying, what do you see in your community? So rather than the urban planner going in there and seeing a, a project or an idea in their own mind of what they want to see things come through. What are the what does a community see in, in in itself? so you talked about your class moving around and, and milling around the, uh, a neighborhood and seeing what is the urban um, indigenous uh, spaces that are happening here. I think as urban planners or you're going to start developing these communities or redeveloping the communities I think there has to be an understanding or a commitment to urban planners to begin to build relationships with the people who are going to be most impacted by these community by their decisions and what is it that they're seeing there what is the vision that they would like to see come about it and I think photo voice or visual ethnography can be an actual really strong tool for urban planners to begin to say okay what do we what is the community trying to tell us and what do I see and how do our visions actually come together or change and re-manipulate itself in order to do what I think we're all trying to do within our within the work that we're doing is how do we build uh, ethical relationships or relational accountability between indigenous non-indigenous and how do we challenge settler colonialism within these sort of spaces
2: yeah and I think it's also about reminding people including planners that when we're talking about practices that are really focused on building good communities creating good communities making sure that people environments, um, are healthy, these are really practices that are about building relationships, right? So to think of this as a relational practice rather than a technocratic practice is uh, one that can, I think, attune our thinking to the politics of planning, right? Rather than thinking of it as merely a a technical activity. And if you're going to think about uh, it as a relational practice, you have to understand a whole set of different things, right? You need to understand Um, The histories of the place, the histories of the people who have lived in that place. um, And also to think about responsibilities. So what are your responsibilities to that place? What are your responsibilities to other beings in that place? And how can you foster those relations and, and live up to those responsibilities? And I think that opens up different ways of thinking about these practices,
1: well, we're here at the Native American Indigenous Studies Association annual meeting here in uh, the Waikato and something you just said really reminded me of, of, of what you hear I think much more at NASA meetings is about how to make good relation like just if, uh, if I was to summarize it to other people that's part of so much of what you hear at this conference is about as opposed to what you hear maybe at other academic conferences so I was uh, Maybe for our audience, just a little understanding of why do you come to NASA? What do you? How do you see it as a? As a? What? What do you see it as a space for? And, and
2: I really appreciate the space that NASA creates for Indigenous scholars and Indigenous communities and people to share ideas and to be in an Indigenous space, which I think, if we're talking about academic context, is really rare. So to have this opportunity to. Um, hear indigenous thinkers share their ideas with other indigenous peoples from all over the world is, is really exciting and, and really unique. You can come to NESA. This is the only conference where I can go and hear a presentation that's going to be partly in Anishinaabemowin and hear a question then also posed in in the language. And to me, that's something really exciting. And I think in, in indicative of the kind of space that uh, NESA is successful in creating. It's just a really exciting, really beautiful place to be
3: so i was forced to come here when i started my phd so a little (laughs) bit different but um, you were told you i was told this is the conference you have to go to if you're going to be in indigenous studies so i started to show up but the reality is is that it's the one conference that indigenous scholars and those who focus working with indigenous partners uh can go and don't have to validate ourselves right off the bat in every single panel that we we belong here like we we this is who we are we don't have to worry about the idea of are we taking up space or why aren't we allowed to have certain spaces whereas most conferences you go to indigenous issues are always put on sub panels or they're always put over in somewhere else whereas this is just a it's a continuation where individuals can come together and talk and speak and we're not validating the importance of our research because it's already validated um, simply by being here. And that's a huge thing, especially for graduate students to begin to come into these spaces and seeing uh, and being able to work with senior scholars that they read about and see and uh, they can go and be a part of without the keynotes that are happening. And I think that's one something that I really enjoy about NASA is that it's the relationships that is the intention of it. It's always been about building relationships and building partnerships, uh, coming together together. again i think from an academic point of view it's it's the one space where indigenous scholars don't have to fight to be validated for what we're trying to say Mm. and we can actually go deeper into the rigor rather than trying to just defend why we need to be able to send it say it
1: yeah it's good i mean i don't mean you to name names but you are respectively from different disciplines so you must go to disciplinary conferences of some kind uh that those disciplines remain unnamed potentially. <laughs> but what what your experience of those has always been alienating is it is it changing are, do you feel disciplinary conferences are changing at all
3: personally no mm. um in Canada, like what we're do- what we're seeing in, a, in some of the national conferences that we're seeing come across is that we're getting uh, plenary sessions or we're getting, like I said subsections of indigenous thought going on in one area, but it's not included with everything else. So it's not when we look at sociology, let's say, um, for, for example. For example, um, they'll have panels at the CSA, like they'll have panels specifically for indigenous and it'll be a panel of indigenous scholars but we won't be able to be included with the other sociological scholars to actually critique the sociological theory and those things going on there because it's we're over here and it's different it's not a part of the actual canon or our thinking unless we have to speak exactly what they want us to say and so do i think it's changing i think that it's opening up spaces but it's just like we're talking about uh, as heather was saying with the the nice facades that are going on buildings i think that's what the these conferences are doing. They're putting a nice little facade because they're getting extra money from the TRC and to put on these uh, special events and really there's no action behind it except for a very select few of individuals who continuously push for it but they were the same people that were pushing for it before the TRC uh, in Canada and and the movement of indigenizing these spaces at the same time.
2: Yeah I kind of feel like I can go to other disciplines and present my work and and that's fine more work is required to justify the work that's being done in the first place. Um, And I think even when it is accepted, it will never be considered to be answering questions that are core to those disciplines, right? Right. So you can do indigenous geography or you can do indigenous planning, but I don't think anyone will say yes. And by doing that, you are answering questions that are key to these disciplines, right? It's always gonna, at least that's my impression, it's still going to be seen as peripheral to the preoccupations of those disciplines
3: but it's not to say that it's not trying it's just that i think in the academy we talk a really big game and that we want to critique everything else outside of the academy and saying they're not moving fast enough but in reality we're doing the exact same things um and we're too afraid at the academy to actually do that internalized gazing onto ourselves and saying are we actually are we doing what we're actually saying or are we just replicating what we're critiquing outside of it um and as disciplines like that sociology, um, where is where is there any re- any where is the indigenous sociological thought that's coming through? Why is it that we have to search so hard to find theories? Why is it that the canon is based off of uh, the white men from a specific time frame, um, and we're not seeing black or indigenous scholars who are in sociology? pushing it and it's when we look at those spaces of those canons for teaching that it's always an ad hoc or it's always those those spaces outside but never really a part of.
1: So uh, I have just a couple of questions left. Uh, You have a forthcoming co edited volume settler city limits indigenous resurgence and colonial violence in the urban prairie west. So where did this book come from for you? What's your what's your personal genealogy of where the drive to have to have a collection that focused on the urban prairie west
2: i think the this geographical focus of the western parts of canada and the united states comes from you know there's been several collections that have looked globally at settler colonialism uh, as a process that is at work at you know, different parts of the globe and looking at urbanization as part of that process. But I think we thought that there was something important about looking more closely at one particular region. So rather than generalizing to the entire globe, saying, asking the question, you know, what's special about the West, right? This is a place that has, where settler colonialism has been defined by really extreme forms of violence, but also there's been really incredible um, organizing and resistance by indigenous communities in, in that that region. And one of the things that a- allowed us to do was also to think beyond the city, right? Think of it be as, think of cities as not simply a container, right? But as places that are embedded within larger territories and connected.
1: But the very fact that there was a gap for this book to kind of intervene in suggests to me like this work wasn't being done a few decades ago.
3: As Heather was saying that there's been a lot done on a global scale I think what this does is it allows for knowledge breathing to occur we can actually look at the global discussions that are happening and bring it down to a local level and allow individuals to see what happens locally and bring it back up onto the global to see that it's the complexities that are happening on the on the prairie west are it's what's happening on a global scale but the the local histories have reshaped those relationships and it's the reshaping the ways in which structures and um are at interplay with one another and as a metis male from the prairies from the place where this is all happening um i think it's important that we have the voices uh, especially indigenous peoples to talk about these intricacies and being an urban indigenous person that uh, what is happening and, and to make sure that it's not about us, but with us and talking about uh, our own perceptions of what we're seeing.
1: Thank you both so much for uh, joining me with this conversation today. So that was our conversation with Heather Dories, an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, and Robert Henry, an assistant professor at the University of Calgary.
0: And now we'll turn to the second conversation that Tim recorded at the 2019 NASA conference with William Lempert, or Willie, an assistant professor of anthropology at Bowden College. Uh, his research is focused on the daily social life of Indigenous Australian filmmaking and is based on years of ethnographic research in the Kimberley region of northwestern Australia since 2006. He follows the life cycles of dozens of film projects through daily collaboration within production teams in order to understand the stakes of Aboriginal self-representation embedded within the process of filmmaking itself. He's interested in the paradoxical relationship between the production of films that vividly imagine hopeful and diverse indigenous futures and the widespread current defunding of Aboriginal communities and organizations.
1: Uh, so a place we like to start usually tell us a little bit about how you've come to be an anthropologist. Yeah
4: thanks Tim um, and thanks for having me on. It's something I think we'll get back to but the question of being an anthropologist It's such a different one if we were at the AAAs as being at NISA, Um, because anthropology comes up a lot, not always in a wholly positive way, but also not in a wholly negative way. It's a really interesting sort of space uh, where people are thinking deeply about the discipline and how it connects to all the other histories of disciplines and indigenous studies as well. Um, As for myself, I... You know, as an undergrad, I, I was I took a sort of funny route. I was an indigenous, or sorry, I was a, uh, an anthropology minor, um, but um, an integrative studies, interdisciplinary major, and it was all about bringing together different disciplines. And so anthropology was sort of, in a way, the most flexible discipline, and that's what uh, drew me to it. Um, but from the very beginning, I was always very interested in the idea of how these things all fit together. And anthropology really seemed, a way, seemed to be a way of using a method that involved actually having to leave the library and talk to real people in the world. Um, but I always saw it as interdisciplinary. I was always, from the beginning, interested in the problems of anthropology. And I liked that, you know, even though anthropology seems to be in endless crisis, something I like about it is that it's, it's open to that. Mm-hmm. This sort of existential It's panic. open
1: to existential dread and panic.
4: <laughs> yeah, I think that's great. In a way, like what a lot of people see as the problem of anthropology from the point of view of it's always having a crisis, I think that's its strength, that it's willing to have a crisis. And not every discipline is for all of its issues that it has. Mm-hmm.
1: How and would I- you summarize that crisis for...
4: And I think it's about the crisis of trying to ethically engage in different points of view around the world in light of the fact that it's all fundamentally coming from this deeply colonial fund, you know, foundation, and there's no sort of easy fix to that. It seems like the folks who are most interested in staying with that trouble are you know, the ones who tend to do the best work. So I think the, the crisis is the way forward, not something to be solved.
1: And how did you come to be a filmmaker? Because that's a crucial part of your practice as well. Were you uh, always into film? Were you always making films? Or was this something
4: you acquired at a certain point? I made a lot of films just with you know, friends as kids, mm-hmm. just joking around. But even from then, film always seemed to be an interesting way of expression. You know, I didn't go to film school. I took just enough film classes you know, for my project to, to be you know, not dead weight, not, uh, you know, to be able to go into any role on a film and do a pretty good job. Um, but my role and my goal was never to be a filmmaker, and I could talk more about this. But it was to, you know, be embedded within media organizations that were doing great things, provide a practical purpose as just, uh, you know, free labor, mm-hmm. um, and then just sort of, you know, translate, to, you know, realms maybe that don't always get translated what they're doing and amplify some of their great work. Uh, Because I felt like the last thing the world needs is another ethnographic filmmaker, in a way. When (laughs) when there's all this great uh, indigenous media stuff happening. Mm. Um, Not that there aren't great ethnographic filmmakers.
1: Yeah, for those who are unfamiliar, like the the world of indigenous media production is is huge and and has a particular history in Australia as elsewhere. And we're seeing that at this conference, like a lot of presentations include something that, you know, some video production or summarize that history for us or or summarize uh, what's going on there, where indigenous media production has kind of come from uh, into these worlds.
4: I mean, it's interesting from an Australian point of view, because the very first, you know, these documented film projects were Spencer... Uh, going out with the original kind of silver you know film, and it didn't go well. it got hot; <laughs> they were up north, and it lit on fire and melted but you know Margaret Mead and a lot of these early anthropologists they they made films and Mead and Bateson would would argue about what their purpose was, but over time you know film has kind of come and gone. But more since, you know, the 50s, 60s, there's been a lot of filmmaking as the technology has progressed. But really since video in the 1980s, that technology really changed the game. You know, all over the world, there's been a lot of great indigenous media projects ever since. And, you know, that's increasing as things go digital. um, It's becoming a lot more accessible. There's a lot more people being trained and uh, less so in the U.S., but in Australia with NITV and and ICTV and all those kind of uh, networks. Um, You know, there's just a really rich, robust, vivid world. And some of the things that I've been looking at are these new genre elements of indigenous media, such as science fiction, virtual reality, um, machinima, animation. Um, So it's really uh, expanding, uh, you know, increasingly in, in depth and breadth every year now. This
1: brings us to the collection in in cultural anthropology uh, last year, uh, Indigenous Media Futures. And I really want to talk about this because it's just so fascinating. Indigenous peoples, as we hear at this conference, it's just so abundantly obvious, so often put in the past tense, right? And we see a lot of media projects often by non-Indigenous people who want to talk about an Indigenous past. Tell us about some Indigenous Media Futures and why they're exciting to you.
4: When you know, when I was doing my master's degree at the University of Denver, I worked with some native film festivals in Denver and New York City, and what were coming out um, around that time, you know, about ten years ago, were science fiction shorts, and they just you know they presented these radically different dystopian, for lack of a better word, sort of utopian uh, futures and you know extraterrestrial encounters. And so it got me interested in that. And uh, long story short, Grace Dillon has this great book called Walking the Clouds, uh, where she sort of coins and engages indigenous futurisms as an idea. And folks like Danica Maddox-Saltzman have written about it. Um, but it's really thinking about this idea of you know, the, the way in which indigenous peoples have been um, dispossessed, dispossessed of a lot of things like land, but also futurity itself. Um, through the settler colonial project and the way in which people are claiming futures um, through media and a variety of other ways, um, and you know, one of the most powerful things that Grace Dillon writes about in her book is that, from a certain point of view, um, the Native apocalypse for some communities already happened. So if you think about things a little bit differently along those lines, things start to look very differently. Um, they, they start to look different, and oddly, in a hopeful sense, um, around a sort of post-apocalyptic way forward, rather than dystopian ending. Mm. Um, so that collection is really about a, different points of view on taking the future seriously, not as a sort of ontological category about radical difference, Um But as a sort of politically uh, charged way of thinking about, uh, um, you know, visioning things to come that have everything to do with policy, um, you know, environmental issues um, and, you know, presenting, you know, hope, which is really desire projected into the future. Um, but hope in a sort of gritty, serious way.
1: So can you any any samples you'd like to recommend to the audience for? Examples of these, like generative, this generative hope.
4: Yeah, um,
1: I'm not asking you to pick favorites because that'd be a terrible thing to do. But
4: you know, th- there's so many good ones. Um, a sort of very brief way that you know that I've discussed talking about the, these futures is you're thinking of utopian futures only because that's the sort of Western sci-fi genre. There's a great film uh, by Nanaba Becker called The Sixth World. Um, it's available online streaming. Folks should look it up. Without spoiling anything, it's about the Navajo Nation's key role in going to Mars. Um, There's a great dystopian sort of short film. is called File Under Miscellaneous by Jeff Barnaby. And it's a sort of 1984 Blade Runner parable about what might happen in one person's sort of autobiography. Uh, There's a great... Very short film called The Visit is by Lisa Jackson about an alien encounter that's specifically non colonial. It's a two minute animation or three minutes. And the other one I'll just mention is Lisa Jackson's more recent film called Badaabin First Light. It's this incredibly immersive virtual reality project that takes place in downtown Toronto. You know, there's so many things it's hard to even, um, like, like you say, uh, pick examples.
1: Well, your own uh, film work, do you see that as part of this futurisms or is it more about the present? Uh, Knowing your work a little, it it does seem more kind of present located for the moment.
4: Yeah. And so when I went to do my field work in Australia uh, around 2014 through 16, I thought, you know, I've been interested in the science fiction stuff, but I didn't imagine that that would be a central part of the things that I would look or look for or find or just notice but what i notice and a lot of people have mentioned this who are working in um aboriginal communities in the northwest especially is the future this idea of the future is increasingly coming up um and in a lot of the films we made one film called four young futures which is all about kids and and there's some documentary projects that uh, i continue to work on that are that are about going back to country that they're largely future focused and mark mora one of the the main uh, guys that I've worked with, uh, who lives in Balgo, you know, he would say all the time that uh, you know, country itself is about the future. That it's always slotted into this sort of past. He talked about it a lot in the future. That country is always about the future. And it's about waking it up. And so again, one of the things that I think is important in the discussions around futures, the trap that you can easily fall into is getting mired in this sort of um, ontological, radical difference.
1: Yeah, that's that's something that's really apparent in uh, your article, Generative Hope in the Post-Apocalyptic Present, is an attempt to talk back to a narrative that was happening very recently and still exists in Australia around remote communities in Western Australia that there was this media reporting of remote communities as having no future, yeah. uh, a kind of evacuating them of their of their future. And yeah. you and your interlocutors speaking back to that, that these are places of a present that is very much about envisioning and practicing a future in the everyday. The dominant language is one of, no, these, these, these places are just places of pasts.
4: Yeah, it's this mythical past, the suffering present and the absent future. And the key point I would make briefly on that is that often there's takedowns of sort of the right wing, um, like kind of talking points or the things that Tony Abbott has said about, you know, lifestyle choices, which is horrendous, but in a way low hanging fruit. Uh, something that I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, the problem of left wing politics in settler states, um, where the issue is it's also largely futureless. So say the NT or the Northern Territory, you know policies often what sort of left wing politics around you know indigenous people and you know in Australia specifically is a more humanistic assimilation based on sympathy and empathy for kids or the you know closing the gap around health measures a lot of the left wing politics are much more humanistic kind of assimilatory Program. I, I mean, boiling down to just the simple fact that if people imagine that, you know, for example, Aboriginal Australian communities have no future, then regardless of how sympathetic they might be, they'll behave and vote and pass policies as though that's true.
1: I feel like we missed a step, which is how did you come to find yourself in a place like Balgo when you, are, you know, for, I think you grew up in Oregon?
4: Um, no. In in Ohio. In Ohio, I knew yeah. it started
1: with an O, but you grow up in Ohio and you end up in Balgo. It, that seems like a, quite a journey, quite a trajectory. How? What's what's the what's the link there?
4: Yes, I was in Australia for one semester as an undergrad, and what brought me to Broome uh, in the north in the northwest in the Kimberley uh, was the music, actually. Um and I was doing a lot of radio uh, in undergrad. And there were radio stations. And anyways, there were some songwriters that I just thought were out of this world talented. And so I went and volunteered at the radio station and interviewed them. They uh, they needed volunteers. And so I got to know folks in Broome at a media organization it's called Galari in and Pacum. You and know, I was there for you know several weeks. And then later on, when I went back to do my Ph.D., I, I was fortunate enough in my program that I was able to go for... A couple different U.S. summers, you know, dry season in Australia, you know, sort of June, July, August, and just slowly see if people were interested in a project. And I was fortunate to have the space to very slowly de- sort of co-develop a project. You know, tried as much as possible to make it so the thing that would be most useful for them was at the heart of what I did and what the project was about, which ended up being following the social life of media, which you know, sort of draws out of materiality studies and anthropology of following the social life of stuff Mm -hmm. and a lot of the indigenous media literature. But at a more pragmatic level, it was a way of being able to say yes and to follow all the things that the media organization wanted me to do as volunteering, whatever it was, you know, getting firewood, um, changing tires. Whatever it was, that was the project. And so then I was able to spend a couple years doing fieldwork there and got involved in of dozens of the, the mostly film projects people were working on.
1: So here at NASA, you were on an incredible panel, if I might say uh, so, as an audience member with uh, David Shorter and Kim TallBear about an experience that the three of you, amongst others, had with the SETI-adjacent world of science, so the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, um, I guess, community uh, out there in the world, where you were approached with a question about what would you most want SETI scientists to know about contacting aliens. I don't know what's the best way into this except to ask, I mean, what was your first impression when this came up that you could have a chance to talk to the world of SETI?
4: It's a great question. And I'll just quickly mention that uh, Sonia Adelaide was on that with us and Claire Webb and Michael Reagan were sort of the drivers of this this desire to reach out to Humanities and social science folks.
1: We send out the signal as yeah. uh, as to extraterrestrial life into the humanities.
4: That's it. Um, which is a, a good metaphor. But you know, we talked a lot about you know the the problem of listening, not just interstellar um, at an interstellar level, but across a table between two humans. Mm-hmm. Is sometimes your worlds apart. Um, but yeah, when you get an email asking if you want to be part of writing a working paper to potentially have an impact on how you make some sort of first contact with extraterrestrials, you know, it piques your interest. What's this all about? And, you know, a a lot of movies like Contact and Arrival pop into your head. And sort of like the crisis of anthropology that we talked about earlier is a good example of a whole experience where the sort of problem of it all, the crisis of it all, what was what is what made it interesting? And so, long story short, we all chatted online, tried to think deeply about what we would have to offer. Uh, And then we were there. They were there virtually. I happened to be in Berkeley, so I was there in person. And we presented them our working paper, hit some of the key highlighted points, and things that would be so obvious at NISA, and to a large extent, anthropology conferences, but especially NISA, things that would, be, that would go without saying were so radical that they couldn't really be heard.
1: Mm-hmm. Can you give an example of like what couldn't be heard?
4: One example, we would, you know, we'd you try to put things in a sort of, um, you know, the language that people were, were there. And I have to say that they were, you know, it's credit to them that they, you know, wanted to listen. Yeah. Or, you know, it, okay. in, in a way, um, to what we had to say. But, you know, you just sometimes cross wires, and um, I mean, we brought up the point about the lack of sort of an ethics or mission statement, Uh, but but one example is, you know, in a data-driven model, you look at the history of Western contact with other societies, and it's hard to think of if there's a single example of it going well, it it would be the exception that proved the rule. It's approximately 100% gone haywire and just tragically and immorally. And criminally, so we we just tried to bring up the possibility that it might not go well. And I think because they've been working so hard for so many years to try to do something that was not even good for their careers, they really believed in that that was for the good of humanity. I think it kind of felt like you know, hey, we're we're trying to have a productive conversation. This feels like it's undermining our entire thing that we're doing. And but we were just trying to make the point that you know, hey, there's there's a history to all this stuff. Mm-hmm. There, there's, there's a pattern to it. Not that you would or could or should stop even, because, you know, of course, this is a working group, but that it would be worth just sitting with this question, just sitting with that trouble a little while.
1: One of the things that really struck me about what you were talking about was that codified within the search for extraterrestrial intelligence are these extremely colonial versions of what intelligence is, what civilization is, which is that there are type one and type two civilizations, and they go through this thing called the great filter, which is an amazing concept. And it's type three civilizations, which might be capable of the kinds of radio transmission that we recognize as intelligence or signs of a certain kind of complexity. This, uh, yeah, as you're saying, this rings like... Alarm bells uh, for us, but yeah, it's not necessarily. I think we can we can mistake things that we think are as as critical humanists are ubiquitous are actually quite obscure in the scientific community. So how to cultivate those conversations? I guess this isn't a good example of successful collaboration in a way.
4: Yeah, I mean, you're so right. I mean, it remains to be seen what will come out of this, but I mean, that's right. The the typologies put off into outer space, you know, are are presented as so matter of fact, but they really parallel in so many ways, the cultural evolutionary race science stuff of, you know, it's not that long ago, you know, a century or two when this stuff was really dominant. And one thing that we talked about is no indigenous society would be seen as having gone through the great filter. Because the only mark of intelligence that they're focused on for what they would say is pragmatic reasons is can you shoot a radio beam or laser into space and, and contact other folks? And and the desire to expand and conquer and travel outward and seek seek contact is baked into the idea of what intelligence is. You know, it led to interesting discussions and, you know, it comes back to, you know, we talked about, you know, I did this, you know, a few episodes of um, this outer space anthropology discussions and just one of the things I would say about um, what's really interesting about this futurism discussion more broadly in anthropology and the outer space anthropologists, people like David Valentine, Deborah Battaglia, Valerie Olson, and then Michael Oman-Reagan, Taylor, Genovese, a lot of people is that um oh, Lisa series, great book, Placing Outer Space. When you take things off of Earth, you can kind of look back and see Earth for the more clearly than you could. And it's like that old um little getting poem, you know, mm-hmm. to to go out or something like that and then come back through the unencumbered gate and see see your home for the first time. There's something about going off Earth where, you know, you just see that. Elon Musk all these billionaires that colonial language alive and well they love it mm-hmm. frontier colony settlement and so i think it's not just a fringe weird kind of esoteric part of anthropology but it actually clarifies a lot of things by you know to you know to quote that old school anthro truism you know to make the familiar strange Making the strange familiar <laughs> yeah. can be pretty dodgy, but yeah. making the familiar strange is often really useful. And I think the futurisms, outer space, you know, like the SETI project, it does a good job of of that.
1: Yeah, this is something uh, that again came up uh, in the panel, was the ways in which some, you know, media products uh, like Star Trek, other kinds of forms of popular culture, I guess another one would be Black Panther, have actually been incredibly generative for reappropriation and reuse for quite different kinds of imaginaries. It's not really a question, and I don't want to incur the wrath of Trekkies uh, (laughs) who who may well be amongst our listeners, but I think this is a a really generative thing is to think, oh, these things are available to quite different uses in in spaces that um, we could have never maybe expected. So there is reasons for hope, I guess, is what I want to say.
4: I, th- I think so. Uh, Gregory Benson has this great sort of pithy quote that you cannot have a future you do not imagine, or you cannot have a future you cannot imagine. I mean, it's essentially, I mean, it's it's just so obviously true. It's not as though anything you imagine will happen, but the sort of politics of the imaginable are really practical. You know, it's played out in Aboriginal communities for the last you know, several years about defunding all sorts of things. Um, but the other thing we said about Star Trek, you know, the sort of point I I had about bringing it in is they famously have this prime directive. And there's always been prime directives. You know, Captain Cook had a prime directive. And so there's this legal fiction of Terra Nullius. There's always prime directives, and they always sound virtuous. But they tend to protect the, the colonizer and provide ways of appearing virtuous. And don't as in Star Trek or anything else, they don't actually protect the folks they're meant to protect, almost ever.
1: I can see a real connection there between what we were talking about before in relation to kind of a certain kind of liberal politics, the the ending of of suffering of certain kinds of people. And yeah, that's the prime directive, but how does it work out in uh, in practice? I think that's part of what uh, anthropology like yours can do, is take us back to what is actually happening, uh, what are people actually doing, uh, and and speak back to some of those imaginaries.
4: As one example of making it very practical, if you think of closing the gap, a set of policies that are about a deficit discourse in this quantitative way, as many listeners will know, around um, mostly around health and, quote-unquote, poverty in Aboriginal communities, if you think of that as a prime directive... That um, it would seemingly be virtuous from a certain point of view um, it works it works in those kind of twisted colonial ways where it's a way of of having this being driven by this thing that would appear to be sympathetic um, but ultimately in the service of conquest
1: we were saying before about. How within uh, Native American and Indigenous studies anthropology has a, a mixed reputation, let's say, for quite good uh, reasons in relation to how anthropology has historically been extractive, spoken in place of Indigenous peoples about, with sought to adjudicate their legitimacy. I could ask this question myself, but I'm not, I'm not going to. <laughs> Why come to NASA? as an anthropologist what kind of what do you what do you get out of being in a space like this why why put you why 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 seek to represent your research in a space uh in this space
4: i mean the specific reason i came to nasa this year though i've wanted to come for a few years uh, is that we had this panel you know specifically around seti but i think you know there's a lot of lip service in anthropology about decolonizing you know at nasa you know no one suffers fools or sort of um, you know surface kind of lip service to these kind of things doesn't cut it. It gets very real. Um, and I think that you know because most folks at NASA um, are indigenous, um, are focused you know on doing collaborative projects with you know native communities that they're often intimately tied to it It serves as a model of what anthropology could be It also demonstrates that any of these old sort of arguments against native anthropology as losing perspective or being too subjective. All of that just makes no sense when you're in a place like this. You see that if anything, it makes the work a lot better. Yeah, I mean, I think it also makes you ask these hard questions, right because you know when you go to the AAA's, it's hard we talk about the the limits of the imaginable. Um, it's hard to imagine what's the purpose of anthropology because um, anthropology is soaked through everything but when you're at something like nysa you, you just think you know what is the role it makes you ask deeper questions about your position and what you're doing and i think in light of the hi- the real histories around disciplines people are so uh you know patient and charitable and take you as a person and want to, you know, find constructive ways forward. It it can only, by by attending these things and thinking with and through, you know, indigenous run and organized events, it can only make anthropology a lot stronger. To go back to the first thing we talked about, anthropology's willingness to sort of look in the mirror and experience the crisis of paradox in its fundamental nature is its strength, and so we should lean into it.
1: Well, on that note, I think it's a great place for us to wrap up our conversation, Willie. Thank you so much for joining me.
4: Thanks, Tim. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks for joining us for another conversation in Anthropology at Deakin. Today we've brought you an episode from the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association 2019 Annual Meeting, hosted at the University of Waikato in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Our guests were Heather Dorries, Robert Henry and Willie Lempert. If you'd like to learn more about Heather's work, you can find her at the University of Toronto webpage. If you'd like to keep up to date on Robert's work, you can find him at the University of Calgary's website. Willie can be found at williamlimpet.com and on Twitter, at Willie Lempert. Conversations in Anthropology at Deakin is produced by me, Timothy Neal, and David Border giles with support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University and in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. If you'd like to get in touch with us about the show, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at T.D. Neal, and David is at D.H. Border giles And if you enjoyed this episode, think about giving us a review on iTunes or elsewhere.